Warning, the following podcast is not suitable for all audiences. We go into great detail with every case that we cover and do our best to bring viewers even deeper into the stories by utilizing disturbing audio and sound effects. Trigger warnings from the stories we cover may include violence, rape, murder, and offenses against children. This podcast is not for everyone. You have been warned. Here at Murder in America, we talk about the worst of humanity. People that murder for a number of reasons like money, jealousy, greed, or sometimes even for their own sick satisfaction. It's unsettling to think that there are people out there with an overwhelming desire to end a human life. When you think of people like this, a number of infamous names probably pop into your head, like Ted Bundy, Israel Keys, or Jeffrey Dahmer. But typically these types of killers are pretty rare. They are human anomalies. And that's why so many people talk about them because it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that people can be that evil. In today's episode, we are going to talk about a killer who was on the level of Jeffrey Dahmer. He dreamed about the act of killing someone, dismembering their body and eating them. This desire grew and grew until one day, he decided to act on his fantasy. But unlike Jeffrey Dahmer, he would get caught almost immediately after murdering his first victim. And unfortunately, that victim was a 10-year-old little girl named Jamie Bolin, a little girl that just happened to live by one of these rare sadistic monsters. This case is truly unlike anything I've ever heard. It's horrific. The details of this crime will not only make you sick to your stomach, but it'll also have you questioning the people around you. This is the story of Jamie Bolin. I'm Courtney Browen. And I'm Colin Browen. And you're listening to Murder in America. September 10th, 2002, the day before the anniversary of the terrorist attacks on America. And I say, who gives a fuck? I'm sick of hearing about it. I was sick of hearing about it a week after it happened. I liked the coverage of it at first because it was entertaining. But after a few days of it, it got boring. They say there's a good chance of another attack of some kind tomorrow. Now, I'm not hoping they attack. I'm not going that far, but if they do, let's just say I'll be watching the new coverage of it for the entertainment value. 
Back in the early 2000s, before social media took over the world, blogs were becoming very popular. It was a place where people could express themselves and write about whatever they wanted, even really horrible stuff like you just heard. That was a blog post from a man named Kevin Ray Underwood. He was born on December 19, 1979, and lived in Purcell, Oklahoma at the time of our story. And since childhood, Kevin was different from other kids his age. He was shy, withdrawn, depressed, anxious, with crippling social anxiety. And as he got older, these things really started to affect his life. He always made good grades and had a pretty good work ethic, but it was hard for him to make friends and even harder for him to talk to women. By the time Kevin was 23 years old in 2003, he was working at a grocery store and more depressed than ever. So his blog became a place of solace. Wednesday, January 8th, 2003. I really got to do something, get some pills or something. I've been so depressed the last couple of months and it just keeps getting worse every day, and especially every night. I haven't had a decent night's sleep in over a week. I get so depressed at night, I can't even get to sleep anymore. I lie there deeply depressed or crying half the night. I've always been a crier my whole life. People who know me may be surprised by that because I usually don't show any emotions, as little as I possibly can. It's the same old crap that's depressing me. I'm very lonely and no one wants me. I would love some human contact, even in a non-sexual, friendly way. I hardly ever touch anyone and no one touches me. About the only human contact I have in my life is when people walk past and accidentally bump into or brush against me. When I hand people their change at work, that's basically the only contact in my life. Sometimes when I'm in a bad mood or something, I don't want to touch or be touched. But the rest of the time, my mind and body are starved for a little human contact. I've only hugged two girls that were not relatives in my entire life. And another thing that bothers me is, of course, the whole sex and relationships thing. I'm 23 and I've only had sex once. I've only been out with one girl and that wasn't really anything serious. She didn't consider herself my girlfriend and if I accidentally suggested such a thing, she'd get angry. We just went out four times on pretty lame dates. I've never had a real relationship with a real girlfriend, someone who loved me. Kevin's depression got so bad, he finally reached out to a professional who diagnosed him and prescribed him Lexapro but he wasn't really consistent with taking the medication. And besides going to work, he mostly just stayed in his apartment, something he had always done since he was a kid. His father would later say that he and Kevin never really had a great relationship because he didn't understand his son. Kevin never participated in any activities or sports, and he mostly just stayed in his room all the time. His father always assumed that one day Kevin would grow out of it, but he clearly never did. One thing about Kevin, however, is that he was very self-aware about all of this. At 23 years old, he recognized the fact that most people his age had friends. They would go out and have fun, have sex, get girlfriends, start a career, but he didn't have any of that. He was a recluse and an incel who just kind of drifted through life. Thursday, February 6th, 2003. So my skills in every area are gone and failing. And that I think is the best explanation why I am the way I am, why I live this pathetic life. 
I have no skills of any kind. I've become a useless lump of flesh, not capable of contributing anything to society. It's a horrible feeling, really. My life is slowly disappearing. Kevin continued to go through highs and lows, although most of the days were lows. He was sporadically taking his Lexapro, and when things got really bad, he tried to distract himself with TV, video games, and porn. And on those bad days, he expressed everything he was feeling in his blog. Sunday, June 29th, 2003. Damn it, I hate this. I let my guard down for a second and now I'm all depressed again. I thought I was finally safe and that I could handle it now, but I was wrong. I've been ignoring the source of the problem for some time now, and it was fine, but now I stopped ignoring it and distracting myself from it, and it got to me again. But Kevin was talking to people about his struggles. He once told his aunt that he was, quote, depressed and hopeless, and he talked with his mom pretty frequently about his depression and anxiety. Like any parent, she was desperate for her son to feel better. She even encouraged him to go see a psychiatrist and get on some medication again. Tuesday, April 12th, 2003. My mom saw one of those TV commercials for Zoloft, one of those depression medicines. It was all about social anxiety disorder. And now she's figured out that that's what's wrong with me. Even though I've been saying that for years, I know that that's what's wrong with me. So now she's trying to get me some medication for it, but I don't want medication for it. That's why I never went to the psychiatrist like I had been planning to. I knew they would just give me pills. I don't want pills. I shouldn't have to take pills to just live a normal life like everyone else. I should be able to do it on my own. Actually, I have been thinking about it though. I have to do something. I can't live like this much longer. I have to do something about it. But Kevin wouldn't go to a psychiatrist and his depression only seemed to be getting worse, especially because more than ever, he was craving female attention. Sunday, August 17th, 2003. Even masturbation sounds boring. Of course, that lost its fun years ago. Now it's basically just a habit. To once again put it bluntly, I really need some pussy. Actually, it's more than that. I don't just need sex. I need a girlfriend, a real relationship. Love and shit like that. Even simpler than that, I need to be touched. And I don't mean in a sexual way. But no one ever touches me. And I don't touch them. Even the simplest touch is the hardest thing for me. I dream of being hugged. Now, Kevin wasn't able to find any women in Purcell, Oklahoma, but he spent a lot of time online. And over the years, he started communicating with a girl online named Melissa, who was the only female companion he had. Tuesday, September 16th, 2003. Here's a funny conversation I had with Melissa. Melissa is a girl that lives in California that I met online. And I've been friends with her for over five years now. Mmm, I'm hungry. What did you have for dinner tonight? Children? Laughing my fucking ass off. LOL, not really. I had meatloaf. Made out of children. So, as you can see, their conversations didn't really have a lot of depth. But Kevin felt as if he could be himself with Melissa. He could say off-putting things and it didn't seem to scare her away. But in the meantime, Kevin's loved ones were growing overly concerned about him. He still wasn't taking his medication and he seemed to take a turn for the worse. Monday, September 22nd, 2003. 
My parents are trying to talk me into getting some Zoloft again. They said that I have to do something. I'm going to take them at least for a little while. At least until I'm able to get a good job or something. They said that if I went to the doctor, they'd even pay for the pills. I'm going to have to go, I guess. It's getting worse. The last couple of times I went, I've gotten even more nervous and embarrassed than usual. The last couple of times I went to a store, I've almost passed out while waiting in line at the checkout. I wasn't able to find if Kevin did go see a psychiatrist following this blog post, but months later, he would write about a girl he was interested in. Thursday, February 12th, 2004. I'm thinking about getting this girl flowers for Valentine's Day. But I don't know if roses would be a bit too much since there's nothing between us at this time. Maybe I should get her some other type of flowers. Maybe I should just kill everyone. Maybe I should just go watch some porn. Now, it's around this time when Kevin starts to become fascinated with cannibalism. It's unclear what brought about this fascination, but here is the first time he mentions it in his blog. Tuesday, February 17th, 2004. Last night, I also bought that Rob Zombie movie, House of a Thousand Corpses. It was pretty cool, but not quite what I expected. First, I expected it to be a lot campier and weirder and also more extreme. The movie was actually pretty tame compared to what I was hoping to see. And there was no cannibalism. For some reason, I was expecting and hoping to see more cannibalism. And here is another blog post about how desperate he is to have sex with a woman. Tuesday, February 24th, 2004. Hooray for sex. Not that I've had any lately. I just feel like cheering for it. Yup, sex would sure be nice. I'm bored. I considered going to a strip club tonight, but I probably won't. Though I really would like to see some breasts. I'm horny enough without being teased by half-naked women gyrating in my face, though. I dreamt about sex all last night and woke up super horny. I'm just glad I didn't have to work this morning. Yeah, I realize how pathetic I am. And I'm more or less fine with it. If only girls would give me a chance. Most of them would be really glad if they did. In August of 2004, Kevin took an online quiz that told him whether he was a sadist or a masochist. Here were some of his responses. Name, Kevin Underwood. Birthday, December 19th. Age, 24. Hair color, red. Eye color, brown. Plans after high school, I've been out of school since 1998, and I still don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with my life. Worst feeling. Well, I've lived most of my life suffering from depression and social anxiety, so I'd have to say that's one of the worst feelings. Being so nervous around people you can barely leave the house. Are you a virgin? No. If not, do you wish you were still? No. I wish I had lots more sex than I have. Do you ever talk to yourself? Constantly. Wanted to die? Yeah been beaten up pretty much constantly for the first 16 years of my life. Killed someone in your thoughts? Constantly. The results of that quiz read, are you sadistic or masochistic? You are sadistic. You enjoy inflicting pain on others to gain sexual satisfaction. Are you an angry person by any chance? Kevin answers, Hmm, maybe a little. I've never tried it. It might be fun, as long as it's consensual. Now, like we've already established, Kevin spent the majority of his free time masturbating and watching porn. And over time, his fantasies start getting darker and darker. So dark, he actually tells his aunt, quote, 
Sometimes you wouldn't believe the weird things that go through my mind. But she clearly didn't understand the severity of those dark thoughts. Unbeknownst to everyone, Kevin started fantasizing about cannibalizing someone. Wednesday, September 29th, 2004. Yesterday, I was really depressed the entire day. I was so depressed. It was one of the times where I'm so depressed my chest hurts. I wonder if that happens to anybody else. When I get really depressed, that happens to me. Like usual, the main thing I've been getting depressed about lately is my lack of a sex life. I mean it. I really need a girlfriend. It's not just depressing anymore. It's actually starting to have a negative effect on my mental state, I think. For example, my fantasies are just getting weirder and weirder. Like, dangerously weird. If people knew the kinds of things I think about anymore, I'd probably be locked away. No probably about it. I know I would be. I wish I had something to do besides sitting at home on the computer all day. I wish I had something to do. I wish I could go out and meet people and stuff. Most of all, I wish I had a girlfriend. So Kevin was always either at work or sitting at home on his computer falling deeper and deeper into his dark fantasies. And the only human interaction he had was with customers at his job or the occasional small talk with his neighbors at his apartment. One family who lived on the floor above him were the Bolins. There was Curtis Bolin, the father, and his 10-year-old daughter, Jamie Rose Bolin. Jamie was born on August 7th, 1995, and raised in Dibble, Oklahoma by her parents. Her mother's name is Jennifer Fox, and she and Curtis were together for the first few years of Jamie's life, but would eventually separate. Following that separation, Curtis would get custody of Jamie and they would move to Purcell, Oklahoma, where he worked as an auto mechanic. Now, as for Jamie's mother, Jennifer, she was working as a truck driver in Oklahoma City, about 45 minutes north of Purcell. My goal was to drive a truck. It was my dream. Since I was five years old, I wanted to drive a truck. But over the years, Jennifer struggled with a meth addiction. So that, coupled with her work schedule, made it to where she didn't get to see Jamie as much as she wanted to. But they still had a good relationship. Jamie, or my copper top. That bright red hair just set her out above everybody. You know, was, She was my copper top. She thought it was cool. Mama drove a truck. At the time of our story in 2006, Jamie and her father were living at the Purcell Park Apartments. She went to school at Purcell Intermediate School and was just months away from finishing the fifth grade. And Jamie was your typical innocent 10-year-old little girl. She was cheerful with bright red hair and freckles. She loved singing, watching movies, sewing, riding four-wheelers and hanging out with her friends. She also loved to read and won many awards at her school. According to neighbors that lived at the Purcell Park apartments, they would often see Jamie smiling and riding her bike around the complex. At the time of our story, Easter was right around the corner. Jamie was looking forward to spending the holiday with her mom, who she hadn't seen in a few months. On Wednesday, April 12th, 2006, Jamie got ready for school that morning and it was just like any other day. She spent time with her friends. She played computer games at the school library. And when school was over, she rode her bike back home 
It was around 3.30 when she went to her apartment to change clothes. And then she made her way back outside with her bicycle. And on her way out, she spots her neighbor, 26-year-old Kevin Underwood, who was just standing there outside of his apartment. The two had spoken on a number of occasions and Jamie was a friendly girl. So she propped her bike up against the stairwell and she and Kevin struck up a conversation. Jamie talked about how hot it was outside and how she had to bike up a big hill that day. Such an innocent conversation. Little did she know as she was talking about the mundane parts of her day, the man in front of her was planning her demise. Kevin glances around and sees that there are no witnesses. So he invites her inside. The trusting and innocent Jamie has no idea that the man living next door was the personification of evil. So she walks through the threshold of his apartment and is never seen alive again. Later that afternoon, Jamie's father, Curtis, comes home to an empty apartment. Because of his work schedule, Jamie was often home alone for hours after school, but she was very responsible, so he never had to worry about her. On this day, however, she's not in the apartment, so he begins to look outside for her, thinking maybe she's just riding her bike. But he looks everywhere, and she's nowhere to be found. Curtis was coming to the realization that he was in the midst of every parent's worst nightmare, so he quickly calls the police to report her missing. Jamie's mother, Jennifer, said that she'll never forget that moment when she found out about her daughter's disappearance. She was on the road in Arizona when she got the phone call, and she immediately tried to pull over, but the truck was halfway on the shoulder and halfway still on the road. It was hard for her in that moment to even comprehend what was happening. The phone call was the start of a never-ending nightmare. Jennifer would later tell the Oklahoman, quote, When he told me, it felt like I stepped outside myself. I freaked out. End quote. Back in Purcell, everyone was on the lookout for 10-year-old Jamie. It's a pretty small town with about 6,000 residents, so as you can imagine, the news of her disappearance was huge. But by nightfall, there was still no sign of her. The following day, on April 13th, the FBI stepped in and issued an Amber Alert for the missing 10-year-old, and they added over two dozen people to help in the search. But still, they came up with nothing. And like with any search, investigators start at the source which in this case is the Purcell Park Apartments. They questioned a number of neighbors at the complex and they set up roadblocks outside where they stopped vehicles in the area to ask if they saw anything suspicious. At around 3.45 p.m. on April 14th, Kevin Ray Underwood would pull up to this roadblock with his father, Larry. Kevin was sitting in the passenger seat when his father rolled down the window to speak with FBI agent Craig Overby. It was clear that Larry was genuinely concerned about the missing young girl. And he tells the FBI agent that his son was actually her neighbor. Agent Overby glances over at Kevin, who is visibly nervous. As an FBI agent, you're trained to observe people's body language. 
and everything about Kevin's was raising red flags. Overby had actually been meaning to speak with Kevin. You see, earlier that day, a neighbor actually told them to look into Kevin because they thought that he might've been the last person to see Jamie alive. So Overby turns to Kevin and asks if he could come to the station to answer some questions. And he agrees. Kevin's father, Larry, would later say that he was actually proud of his son as the agents took him away. In his mind, his son was going to help them find this little girl. And he was right, in a sense. Kevin rode over in a patrol car and was placed in an interrogation room with Agent Overby and Agent Martin Mack. And they start by asking Kevin, when was the last time he saw Jamie? Kevin claims that he saw her on the afternoon of April 12th, the day she went missing, but he said he hadn't seen her since. He also added that he would have never hurt Jamie because she reminded him of his little sister. And like we mentioned earlier, Kevin didn't have the best social skills. And in a room with these FBI agents, he was definitely nervous. The interview only lasted about an hour. And by the end of it, the agents were sure that Kevin knew more than he was letting on. So they tell him, well, why don't you let us search your apartment and we can cross you off our list and get out of your hair. And Kevin agrees. At around 5 p.m. that day, Overby and Mag accompanied Kevin back to his apartment and began their search. His place wasn't that big, so there wasn't much to search in the first place. But as they look around, Kevin stands awkwardly in the corner with his anxiety building as they near his closet. Overby eventually opens it, and on the ground was a plastic storage bin. But it wasn't your typical storage bin. This one had duct tape around the lid, sealing it shut. And Kevin quickly interjects. Oh, um, that's where I keep my comic books. I, I keep the duct tape on there to, uh, to keep the, keep the moisture out. Overby doesn't buy that story. So he says... Mind if I take a look inside? Kevin nervously nods his head, knowing exactly what they were about to find. Overby carefully peels back the duct tape, and once it's off, he slowly removes the lid. As suspected, there were no comic books inside. Instead, they find the body of 10-year-old Jamie Rose Bolin. As the agents turn towards Kevin, he defeatedly responds, Go ahead and arrest me. She's in there. I chopped her up. Investigators place Kevin Underwood under arrest for the murder of 10-year-old Jamie Bolin. And as they put the handcuffs around his wrists, he begins to hyperventilate, saying, I'm going to burn in hell. I'm going to burn in hell. I'm going to burn in hell. Not wanting to make a scene, the officers try to calm him down before leading him out to a patrol car. And Jamie's family watches in horror as they learned she had been right there the entire time. Now, Kevin lived across the hall on the floor beneath them, and Jamie's aunt would later say, we were sitting outside his patio door the entire time. We could have been sitting there at the very moment he killed her, and that's an awful thing to think about. As Kevin was taken away to the police station, the Purcell Park Apartments became a crime scene. In the plastic bin that held Jamie's body, they found her naked and nearly decapitated, lying next to a blood-soaked towel. 
She'd been wrapped in plastic, and the blue shirt she was wearing that day was draped over her. Inside of his apartment, they also found a meat tenderizer, barbecue skewers, a wooden cutting board, a hacksaw, duct tape, a computer, a video about a serial killer, a duffel bag, and a dagger, all of which would be taken in as evidence. And as the investigators removed Jamie's little body from the bin to take her to the medical examiner, they couldn't help but notice all the cuts and bruises around her neck. She had a 12-centimeter wound on the front and sides of her neck that cut all the way through the skin, tissue, muscle, jugular veins, carotid arteries, nerves, trachea, thyroid gland, and esophagus. And because she was nude, they did test for semen both in and on her body, but they weren't able to find any. They did, however, find two tears inside of her vagina from blunt force trauma, so she had been sexually assaulted. They also found bruising to the back of her head and petechia in her eyes consistent with strangulation. Following this, Police Chief David Tompkins released a statement to the public that read, Regarding a potential motive, this appears to be part of a plan to kidnap a person, rape them, torture them, kill them, cut off their head, drain the body of blood, rape the corpse, eat the corpse, and dispose of the organs and bones. This truly was one of the most heinous crimes the city of Purcell, Oklahoma had ever seen. And like with any senseless murder, everyone wanted to know why. Back at the station, Kevin Underwood was about to reveal everything as he took investigators into the darkest corners of his sick and twisted mind. Now, trigger warning, we are about to play portions of Kevin's confession, and it is incredibly disturbing. The fantasies that he will talk about include rape, torture, murder, dismemberment, and cannibalism. He also goes into great detail about the last minutes of Jamie's life, and it's hard to listen to. And obviously, we're talking about a child here, so if you are sensitive to any of these topics, now is the time to turn this off. But after Agent Overby and Mag bring Kevin in, they sit him down and make sure he's comfortable. They wanna be on his good side, so he's willing to tell them everything. So they read him his Miranda rights, and Kevin agrees to speak with them without a lawyer. And they set the tone of the interview by kind of playing on Kevin's ego, making him feel smart and important. I tell you something that surprised me when I, when we were talking, I was going to interrupt for a second. Was you, you seem like a very intelligent person just from the moment I started talking to you. And when you said I've been to college for a couple of years at Dart Science, that didn't surprise me. I said, oh, this strikes me as a guy who's got a college degree just in your demeanor and the way you talk, have such good language skills, maybe better mind. <laughs> Sound a little country, I guess. Yeah, very, very, articulate, very right, articulate. We didn't have any problem understanding. Yeah, I always feel like I have a horrible accent. I didn't used to have much of an accent at all, but it seems like just over the last two or three years, my young vocal skills have gone downhill. But you, don't, you don't sound that way to me at all, actually. You sound very smart. My, my uh, vocabulary is not what it once was. So as you can tell, the interview starts out light and friendly. Kevin even laughs with them about the bumper stickers on his vehicle. 
is there any way that we can identify this vehicle other than the tag number? Is there something in it that you can specifically say it's this vehicle saver? How oh, there's uh, bumper stickers on the back. What are those bumper stickers? Uh, one of them says uh, anybody but Bush. And uh, other one says uh, U.S. government philosophy, if it ain't broke, fix it till it is. <laughs> we don't hold that against you, by the way. It's always so interesting to me how these agents just found the body of a 10-year-old girl and they have to put all of their emotions aside and act all buddy-buddy with her killer. But during the search of Kevin's apartment, investigators would find a number of things, including his online blog, which he had been posting on for the last couple of years. So they ask him if he likes to write. When you were in school, you were an English major? I, uh, I never declared a major. It's, so, is that where you were leaning? It's what I was probably intending on being, yeah. Do you see, I noticed that you liked um, Hunter Thompson. Do you see yourself like a writer? I always wanted to be, but I just didn't really have the skill. I mean, I, I haven't wrote anything in years. Are you a, Were you ever a journalist, you know, where you would write journals? No. Were you that type of guy? Right, a lot of journals. And I, well, I do have a, you know, a blog, uh, like online oh, journal thing I write in. I haven't even wrote in it hardly in a couple months. Well, when you were writing your blog, uh, what would you write? What kind of, what would you do? Mainly, you like just, about? mainly just, I mean, like what happened to me during the day. And, you know, just like an online diary? Yeah, pretty much. From here, they asked Kevin about his homicidal fantasies and when they came about. He claims it all started when he began taking his antidepressants. Um, we kind of go back. We, we've had a, you know, the day just kind of went wham, wham, wham. You know, it just took everybody kind of by surprise, I think. Um, yeah, we, we were definitely surprised. We were shocked yeah. about our discovery with you. And it was a complete surprise to both of us. But we think, you know, I think at some point you realize you had to do the right thing and tell, tell what happened. And uh, why don't you go right back from the very start? When did, when did this kind of thought first occur to you? Maybe do something like this. Uh, How long has this been with you? A couple of months, probably. Uh, you know, I was telling one of the guys earlier, that, um, you know, I don't know if it has anything to do with the medication I'm on or what, because it started about the same time I went back on it. Uh, now, the first time you were on it, did you have that problem? No, I, the first time I took medication a year or two ago, it uh, seemed fine. But uh, then about a month and a half ago, I got back on it again. And yeah, ever since I started taking it again, I've just been like, eating constantly. Just from the minute I get home to the minute I go to sleep, nearly I eat. I gained probably 20, 30 pounds in the last month. And about the same time, I just seemed like I started having all these you know, weird fantasies and everything. When did that the first time in your life? I, and and we understand this. I mean, it's, what what you experience is nothing unusual. There's some people that fantasize, you know, about different things. That, for instance, one guy might fantasize being with three different women, and that, that's kind of what turns him on. And, and some people, their fantasies may go a little more violent. You know, some people they might fantasize about handcuffing somebody and having sex. And it may progress a little bit, but when do you first think you started having 
you know, fantasies of this nature? Was it as a teenager? Did, did you have this? No, it was all recently. Can you describe what your fantasy is for us, for the record? Well, it started off as uh, cannibalism. Uh, you know, just the, uh, you know, I wanted to, you know, know what, what it tasted like, and just the thought of uh, eating, you know, someone, just, you know, was appealing to me. But then, uh, you know, it kept kind of evolving from there because uh, I am, you know, sexually frustrated. I haven't had sex in four years. At this point in the confession, the agents asked Kevin why he picked Jamie and how long had he been planning this attack. Is it, I'll tell you, the thing about my personality is I'm the kind of guy, and I think you're the same way, but like in my office, I had things in a certain way. I mean, I put things in a certain place. Are, are you a planner? Are you a guy that likes to plan? Not really, no. Okay. Yeah. I, Certainly planned this out. I mean, I've been thinking about it for at least a month. So, five months. Now, it was it specifically the girl in question, or what? No, I, I told the guy earlier it could have really been anyone. I mean, age and it, it wasn't even, you know, it wasn't necessarily, you know, a pedophile thing either. I mean, age and even gender didn't even really matter to me. I just, uh, at first I just wanted uh, basically to uh, eat someone, and then it turned into. Well, I'm at it. I'm gonna, you know, uh, you know, get off, you know, mm-hmm. have sex with him. You know. Were you gonna have sex before or after, or both? Uh, well, my my plan, my original plan, uh, the way I had envisioned it all going was, I was gonna just uh, like grab him and like, just any person. Yeah, just uh, well, I did kind of favor this girl a little. I'd seen her and. I was like, you know, I, I was kind of like, well, I'd really like her. But then as I saw her more and more, I, you know, I'd think, no, I can't hurt her. You know, she's nice. I, I know her too well. And you mentioned her name for the record. I didn't even know it until this happened. It was Jamie Bolin or something like that. How did you learn of her name? Newspaper. Newspaper. I didn't even know her name until today. Is the account of the newspaper's description of Jamie Bolin the same girl that we're talking about? Seems like it. I are. I. I had no idea she was ten. I. I would have sworn she was probably twelve or thirteen. By the Can way, you just for the record describe it before you continue on? Describe her. Yeah, her physical appearance. She was a. Uh, you know, had thin red hair, glasses. She was a little chubby. And where did she live? Uh, upstairs and across. Do you know the apartment number? I was one fifteen. So maybe two. I think like 2.13. But it was up and across from Yeah, upstairs okay. and across the hall. I just want to make sure I was clear on that, who it was. You can go ahead with Mr. Overby's questions. Um, I don't know if you remember when we first talked, we mentioned her, and he said, you know, I, I could never hurt her because she reminds me of my sister. Yeah. Was that, why did you say that? Was that true, or were you, at the time, were you trying to throw us off? Or? That was, uh, yeah, more or less something I thought of after I already... Okay. You thought that you could tell us later if you were asked, hey, I could never do this because she kind of looks like my sister anyway. Kind of, yeah. In this next part, Kevin will go into a lot of detail on exactly what his fantasy is. And it is very, very difficult to listen to. So the trigger warnings, again, include kidnapping, rape, torture, 
murder, dismemberment, and cannibalism. Now, going back to um, the plan, you, uh, yeah, so, you had the handcuffs and the duct tape. Yeah, so what I was going to do is I was going to, uh, you know, like I said, yank him in there, strain him, and if, if it was a kid, I was going to just make them sit there and watch some porn for And then I was going to have sex with them. And then... Were you going to try to make it, turn them on with the porn and make it voluntary? I was, you know, kind of hoping that would happen, but I you know, figured it probably wouldn't. So you think that you would have to do it by force? Yeah, mo most likely. Okay. And then, you know, the uh, after the sex, it would turn kind of violent. I'd start uh, kind of torturing them a little and stuff like that. Uh, How would you torture them? Uh, In your fantasies, what would you do? Sticking large objects in their anus, uh, causing them pain that way. I had some uh, long barbecue skewers I bought. I was going to poke through their cheeks. I've got a, uh, in that bag of porn, there's also a Barbie doll head I found on the ground a while back that I stuck some needles in. Kind of illustrates what was in my fantasy. Mm -hmm. It had like some needles in its cheeks and some nails in its eyes, but I wasn't intending on doing that because I... The, the, the uh, torture was kind of a late addition because at first I wanted the body to be pretty much unharmed because uh, what I was going to do after that then was I was going to, uh, while they were still alive and gagged, I was going to uh, drape them over the bathtub and cut off their head and uh, then hang them there and let the blood all drain out, good and drained out. And I was going to keep the body around for a couple of days. I was going to set the head on my desk so it could like watch me and you know keep the corpse in my bed sleeping with it having sex with it for a day or two and then i was going to start butchering them and cooking them so okay. did you buy any pots or any special things for that just the barbecue ske skewers and some meat tenderizer powder and uh hacksaw to cut open the head to get to the brain because I wanted to eat the brain and the heart and some of the organs. Uh, it's, it's been my experience that a lot of people who like or think about those kind of things maybe experiment with animals. Have you ever experimented with animals? No, uh, I told the guy earlier, in fact, you know, this, like I've said, this is just entirely against my nature. And if, you know, I told him I'm not really religious, but what beliefs I do have would be uh, pretty much best described as Buddhist and uh, I hated I, I didn't even like stepping on bugs you know I didn't believe in violence or in anything until this happened so. now after after you chopped the head off and maybe cooked them and stuff, what what would you can you continue on from there uh, well uh, then it went into you know disposing of the body I was probably going to keep the skull uh, but then you know I was going to pretty much eat everything except for some of the organs and those I figured I could, you know, put in a trash bag and probably throw away without too much uh, chance of getting caught. Uh, and uh, so basically all that'd be left was bones. And I was going to uh, try to, you know, break the bones up into little pieces so they wouldn't be as visible and, you know, dump them in a ditch somewhere. Okay. Or if, you know, then, then well, that, that was my original plan. That's what... I wanted to do, but you know. Now, did you ever write any of this down on no. your computer? Yeah. Because you know they're going to go through your computer really good. Yeah, I know, yeah. I already deleted, like, as soon as uh, 
I never had anything wrote down, but I already deleted uh, a lot of the porn and stuff off my computer. After this happened? Yeah, as soon as, like, the cops, you know, started sniffing around, like... Uh, Asking? Because uh, all, all, all the porn's there, but I had a lot of, uh, in the last couple of months, I had been to a bunch, you know, there's a lot of websites out there where you can download, like, crime scene photos, like, real dead bodies and stuff like that, and I had a fairly large collection of those. I deleted, like, all of those. And uh, I, I never had any child pornography, but, and it might still be on there because I think I put it in a different directory than the rest of the porn. I had just a couple, like four or five pictures I downloaded from like a children's swimwear catalog of like 10 year old girls in swimsuits. But that's close as I ever had like any child pornography or anything. Kevin had saved pictures of 10 year old little girls in swimsuits. So he clearly was attracted to young girls around Jamie's age. They also found pictures of dead women during their autopsies, nude anime characters being sliced and eaten, a picture of an infant in a cooking pot on top of a stove with the caption, baby food. And they found messages between him and Melissa where he was talking about how he wanted to create a children's book that talked about anal sex, saying, quote, children need more books about ass fucking. And the more he surfed the web on these dark topics, the more and more he fantasized about doing it himself. When did you think you first started downloading this kind of stuff? Because they're gonna know for a fact. Yeah, well, the cannibalism thing started uh, probably a year or so ago. So the, the deal with cannibalism may have been a, a song ago, but... Yeah, but, I mean, it, was, it wasn't something I was... I mean, you know, I was kind of interested in, you know, kind of curious as to what it tastes like, and, uh, you know, it kind of aroused me, and I, you know, kind of masturbated to some of the pictures, because, I mean, there was this website I found, I don't even remember what it is now, where you could download lots of, you know, like, fake computer graphic images of, like, women on spits and stuff like that and you know cooking over a fire or whatever you found it sexually arousing yeah I'm very uh, but it was the thought of killing someone though at the same time it was in my mind it was like well I'd only do it you know if the woman you know wanted to die and wanted me to eat her mm -hmm. you know I wouldn't you know go out and kill someone you know murder's wrong I wouldn't ever murder someone that's you know way I thought at the time but um, I've been surfing internet porns for probably 12, 13 years. And, you know, there's a lot of weird stuff on the internet. And so as the years went by, you know, I just kind of got uh, kind of desensitized to normal porn and just had to keep going after like harder and harder core stuff until it, until it finally yeah, got to kind of this cannibalism point. And then here recently after that, I started to, you know, like kind of seriously think about it and, uh, you know, develop an interest in these pictures of real death and cannibalism. And have you ever read gore and gruesome things? And have you ever read uh, psychology books or internet sites and just out of curiosity reading about people with like interests or to say, hey, you know, somebody like me who, of likewise people, who would get sexual gratifications out of, you know, out of possible cannibalism or, or viewing women on spits or things well, like that. Well, that site, yeah, that I downloaded, like, all the fake pictures from, it was it was a message board, mostly, and pictures, uh, you know, it was mostly text, but people would uh, 
So like here, you know, here's this picture I made with my computer. And uh, it was, you know, so it was all like people with the same interests and, you know, pretty much probably 95% of them, uh, from what they said on there anyway, were of the same mindset as me. You know, I would never do this, but it's fun to fantasize about. It's a, it's a fun yeah. fantasy. It's a, you know, it's an interesting fantasy that gets me off, but I would never kill anyone. And given the chance, I would probably not ever actually eat someone. But over time, Kevin became more and more interested in participating in this cannibalistic fantasy. And by this part in our story, he had been planning it for months. He even bought all the supplies he needed to carry it out. The only thing he really needed now was a victim. It was, well, I, I'd been planning it. Like I said, I'd been planning it for months, buying supplies and, you know, trying to get the exact plan down of what I do and how I dispose of it afterwards. And, and the exact victim. And... Well, like I said, I kind of wanted her, but it didn't really matter. I mean, it's, that's to tell the truth, that's the main reason I was hanging out in front of my apartment is to watch all the kids and watch all the people coming and going. It was, I, you know, I had pretty much planned all along to probably get a kid just mainly because they'd be easier to grab and easier to get rid of afterwards, smaller, and, you know, put up less of a fight. But there was a few, you know, girls of my age, I'd be like, you know, well, she's really attractive. I wouldn't mind you know, killing and eating her and having sex with her and all that. But, uh, I mean, some of the kids that I, when I, when I was first thinking about it, you know, I was like looking at, the, you know, like five-year-old boys running around out there playing all day. So, I mean, the age and the gender didn't really matter to me. Kevin knew that finding a girl his age would be a lot harder to kidnap and murder. For one, girls would barely even talk to him, let alone step foot in his apartment. So he started looking around at the children in his apartment complex. He claimed that he didn't know Jamie's name, but he had seen her running around the complex several times before. In fact, Jamie had actually been in his apartment. Months prior to this, Kevin was standing outside with his pet rat. He likely did this so he could get the attention of the children. And sure enough, Jamie saw him with his rat and she approached him asking if she could pet it. This was their first interaction. But the night before her murder, Jamie would go into Kevin's apartment to use his cell phone. And it's here when he decides that Jamie will be his victim. There had been, there was plenty of times before that I could have grabbed her if I wanted or grabbed some other kid, but especially her because uh, like I say, she got to where she talked to me and she'd actually been in my apartment a couple of times before that. Uh, she, well, she'd come down, because like one time I was standing out there with my pet rat holding it and had it on my shoulder. And, you know, she thought it was cute and she wanted to pet it. And then like later that evening, I was still had my front door open, but I was like sitting on the couch watching TV and she just kind of wandered into my apartment and you know, said, can I pet your rat? And so she came in for a few minutes and, you know, looked at my rat and fed it a food pellet. And then, uh, Tuesday night, the night before this happened, she came down, uh, I guess her, I guess they didn't have a phone upstairs because I'd see her occasionally go to, there's like a pay phone on the other side of the compound. She'd go down there and use that. And she was going down there to, uh, her father sent down there, sent her down there to uh, call Mazio's and order some pizza for her. And, but I was standing there in my doorway and she's just like, well, you know, can I use your phone? Uh, but she was a very trusting kid. If it hadn't been me, it could have ended up being someone else because I said she just wandered into my apartment. I didn't, you know, force her in there or even ask her in. Did you find her attractive? Not really, no. She was kind of homely. 
Uh, but uh, that was part of me that yeah, kind of found her attractive, but at the same time, not really. What, is that? I don't know, what, is, what did you mean by home language? Well, she I don't know. She just had like she was almost bald. She had like really thin hair, really thin hair. And, what color was it? Again? Uh, light red, almost blondish red. Uh, and you know, she was a little chubby, and you know, just kind of wasn't my type, basically. Uh, and you said again, you thought, how old was she? I, I would have sworn she was at least 12, maybe 13. So so you were pretty confident you knew she was a kid. I mean, there wasn't any question. Yeah, yeah. Kevin then talks about how he considered killing her several times before, but he would always talk himself out of it. And so, you know, I had plenty of chances to get her. Uh, but, you know, like I said, uh, every time I'd, I'd be thinking, you know, oh, I'm going to do this. I want to get her, definitely her. But then I'd see her and, you know, be, oh, I'm going to get her this time. And then be like, then I'd see her, though, and like, no, I can't hurt her, you know, and all that. And, I mean, that happened pretty much every kid, but I, you know, kind of wimp out at the last minute, uh, but especially her, because I kind of liked her. Well, another thing that kept it from happening so long is, you know, I'd be standing there in the doorway fantasizing about it, you know, preparing to grab a kid, and I'd get so turned on I'd end up masturbating. And... You know, like as soon as I had an orgasm, I'd, the yeah, I'd just be hit with disgust and be like, my God, what am I thinking about? You know, it's, you can't do that. That's horrible. And uh, so that's usually what would happen. Uh, Let me ask you, when you masturbate. Kevin said that every time he used to fantasize about children, he was disgusted with himself. But Wednesday, April 12th was different. He didn't have to go to work that morning, so he had a pretty casual day. He went by his mom's house to drop off his laundry like he always did. And afterwards, he left to do a bit of shopping. At around two o'clock, he said he returned home where he would get on his computer to chat with his online friend, Melissa. Then he went back to his parents' house to pick up his laundry, and he said he helped his little sister with her homework. Then after that, he came back home. Now, as he walked up to his apartment, he saw that Jamie's bike was in front of her unit, meaning she was already home from school, which kind of messed up his plan. Because of what I really wanted to do, I you know, had kind of planned it for that day, but I mean, I'd been planning it for like every day for like a month, pretty much. Uh, I planned you know, to get her as she you know, walked in from school before she had a chance to even go upstairs and you know, so it would look like she never came home from school is what I wanted. But I was surprised and, you know, kind of annoyed to learn that she'd already been upstairs and, you know, come home and been upstairs and gone again. So I hung around waiting for her and about 10, 15 minutes after that, probably about 3.45 or so, something like that, she, you know, came back home, just stuck her. She didn't chain her bike up. She just propped it up against the stairwell there and went upstairs and came back down about four o'clock uh, in a new outfit. She had changed clothes. Yeah, uh, on, on the first time she came home before she went and changed clothes, you know, she stopped, she saw me stand there and, you know, she was just like, oh, this is horrible. I had to, I came home from school and realized I forgot my house keys at home and had to go back and get them. And it's so hot today and I have to go up a big hill. And you know, she was just complaining about how hot she was. And, she just couldn't believe how hot it was around here. She said it, she didn't think it ever got that hot in Dibble where she used to live. And, uh, and then she went upstairs and came back down in a uh, 
new outfit with a cup, uh, a mug of ice milk, which the mug's also in the back with the uh, bicycle parts. And there's something so innocent about that image. 10-year-old Jamie, sweaty from a long, hot day, chugging a glass of milk after school, having no idea that her life was about to be taken from her. She even made a comment about how there's nothing better than an ice-cold milk on a hot day. But while Jamie is standing there talking, Kevin is pretending to be engaged in the conversation. Meanwhile, he's glancing over at her bike, figuring out how he's going to get rid of it once he kills her. Yeah, her bike was still unlocked right there. Yeah, it was still sitting there unlocked, which was good because that had been my plan all along was to take the bike too. So I looked her, you know, if I couldn't get her on her way home from school to take the bike, so it would look like she, you know, was out on her bike and got kidnapped or run off or something like that. Uh, from here, Kevin says that Jamie asked to see his rat again. But in reality, I'm sure he was the one who invited her inside since he had been planning this but he glanced around to make sure no one was watching. And when the coast was clear, he and Jamie walked inside of his apartment. Kevin said that Jamie started petting his rat before he suggested they watch some cartoons. About the only TV I ever watch is cartoons, Cartoon Network and Nickelodeon and SpongeBob was on. And so she was kind of sitting there watching that and we were talking about the show a little and she was in my apartment probably a good 15 minutes. And uh, after she'd been in there a few minutes, you know, when she first came in, I was like, oh, now's my chance. But, you know, then I had the same, no, I can't do it. And I just kind of struggled with myself the whole time she was in there. And, uh... It was a struggle between right and wrong? Yeah, uh, well, or kind of, yeah, both that and, you know, not wanting to get caught. But, but yeah, it was partly because, you know, uh, you know, I can't do this. I don't want to do it. But then, you know, yeah, I want to do this. Now, Kevin says that he was having a mental battle within himself on whether or not he wanted to do this, but it's clear that he already made up his mind long before. In fact, he would later say that as he was sitting there, picturing how everything would play out, he got an erection and everything was perfectly planned out. He bought duct tape and handcuffs for the kidnapping, a hacksaw for the dismemberment, and for the cannibalism, he purchased a meat tenderizer and barbecue skewers. He was well prepared and he actually kept the duct tape and handcuffs right by his door so that if the opportunity presented itself, he could quickly use them to kidnap Jamie. But anyway, and then I even had, uh, I had all the stuff, I'd had all the stuff sitting there handy uh, on that uh, you know entertainment center right by my door, I'd had uh, you know like for the last month I'd had a piece of duct tape stuck there, so you know I could just grab and slap the tape over their mouth, and also the handcuffs sitting there on the shelf, so you know I could yank them in and restrain them, hopefully before they had the time to yell or anything. And uh, oh, and also it had been just a uh, two or three nights before that I, you know, suddenly thought of the. Uh, it was mainly something I had reserved for if I did grab an adult, something to subdue him. I tried to find something heavy I could hopefully hit him on the head and knock him out with. And the best thing I had was a uh, slightly heavy wooden cutting board in the kitchen. So I had that sitting on the entertainment center at that time too. And after she'd been in there a few minutes, I kind of... So it'd be ready so you'd have it right there at you? Yes. Yeah, just kind of like yank him in and whack him over the head. But according to Kevin, that was just the plan if he abducted an adult. His plans for abducting a child 
were much more disturbing. If it was a kid, like I said, I wanted to keep him conscious and make him watch porn. Uh, but uh, I even also kind of, you know, also was, as they were watching the porn, you know, depending on how old they were, you know, like telling them what was going on. You know, like, well, this is sex. You know, the guy does this and the woman does this. And, you know, this is called an orgasm, you know, kind of like teaching them. But, um, and hopefully they'd want to try it for themselves. Something like that. Uh, but anyway, then, uh, you know, so I kind of, once she got in there, I kind of was like, oh, you know, it was more of the, the uh, you know, kind of regrets and fears. And I was like, you know, I better just knock her out, you know, knock her out and, you know, then restrain her while she's unconscious. You know, get her clothes off and everything while she's unconscious. And I'm not even going to bother with the porn. I'm just going to, you know, knock her out and rape her. It's horrifying to think that while Jamie was sitting on his floor, watching SpongeBob and petting his rat, Kevin was standing behind her with all of these repulsive thoughts running through his head. She sat there for a few more minutes while Kevin contemplated his next move. And while her eyes were fixed on the television, he slowly stands up, glancing over at the wooden cutting board that he had next to his front door. In his mind, he was going to sneak up behind her and hit her over the head, knocking her unconscious. And from there, he could carry on with his sick plan. But Kevin was about to find out that knocking someone out is a lot harder than portrayed in the movies. So uh, after she'd been in there a few minutes, I kind of, you know, made my way around behind her and was just kind of standing behind her watching, you know, talking to her as we were watching the show and kind of, you know, fighting with myself. I'd, I'd grabbed the, I, you know, reached up there once and grabbed the uh, cutting board and, you know, then I like put it down on the couch. I couldn't do it. And so for like five minutes, I just stood there, you know, going back and forth, picking it up, putting it back down and saying, you know, and finally I was just, you know, look, either do it or tell her to get the hell out of the apartment, you know. Uh, and finally I did it. Kevin swung the cutting board down onto Jamie's head, but instead of knocking her out, she starts to cry. Being an innocent 10-year-old, she didn't understand what was happening, that the man in front of her had been fantasizing about raping and killing her. No 10-year-old would ever think that. Instead, Jamie thinks that she was the one that did something wrong. And, you know, as soon as I hit her, what did she say when you hit her? That's something that's, you know, haunted me forever since it happened. Uh, she started yelling, I'm sorry. Which, you know, I'm just like, you know, what is she sorry for? She didn't do anything wrong. It's me, you know, I'm the one that should be sorry. She was just, you know, like, you know, whacked her over the head. It made a loud noise. If there was anyone home, you know, I mean, apparently no one had been home in the apartment next to me or above me or I would have been caught for sure because it did knock her out. She started screaming. Kevin, how did you hold the board? I'm not clear to me how you did her. It had a, you know, it was like a square, you know, like a little hole cut out like a handle. Uh -huh. And I just held it by the handle and like whacked. With one hand like, like a... Yeah, yeah, just like whacked her upside the side of the head. Where did you hit her on the head? In court, it was later revealed that on top of saying she was sorry, Jamie also told Kevin... Let me go. I won't tell. But in his mind, it was too late for that. And he continued to hit her in the head. You put it on my head where you hit her. I was standing behind her, so yeah, it was about, probably, about, probably about like that. Something okay. like that. 
Okay, right there. Yeah, maybe down farther on the side. It's probably kind of the side top. But because I think, I think I did it with this hand. Uh, no, it was probably this hand because I'm right-handed and that was my stronger hand. So yeah, it was probably this. Right you were behind her. Yeah, I was behind her, and just whack, and she was where? Sitting in the floor, like in front of the TV okay. and the rat cage. Okay. It was right up against the rat cage. Almost. I had to, yeah, you know, I had to kind of wait for her to get in a position. I didn't want her to like fall over on the rat cage. Uh, so I whacked her with that, and she, you know, she's like, "Ow!" and started crying, and she's like, "Oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my God, I'm sorry," and saying "I'm sorry" over and over, mostly. And I, so I whacked her again, and. She jumped up, and you know, I, I couldn't believe it didn't knock her out. I hit her. You know, it's, it's all kind of a blur once it started happening. But I hit her, I think, three times, maybe four. But with all each time with the same cutting board. Yeah. And as hard as you could. Yeah, I mean, every time I got harder, because I was like, you know, she's not going down. Yeah, so I'm like, why isn't she unconscious yet? Because you think when you hit somebody, hit her on Google, because you see it on TV. They, yeah. Did she that, resist? She yeah, she uh, like I said, she jumped. She was yelling, uh, "God, I'm sorry," and you know, uh, you know, let me go. I won't tell. And you know, I mean, after I hit her a couple times, I finally just had to you know jump up and grab her. And she was, I couldn't believe how strong she was. I barely held her down. After hitting Jamie several times, Kevin realized that he wasn't going to knock her out, so he tackled her to the ground. But Jamie was not going to go down without a fight. She struggled against the 26-year-old man for several minutes, even urinating herself trying to get away. But Kevin overpowered her and quickly began to cut off her oxygen. I finally, I like to never got her down to the ground. I mean, I had to, well, you know, how I, I didn't want to choke her because like I said, I wanted the body to be pretty much perfect. Uh, so I didn't want to leave the, you know, marks around her neck or anything. So I just, you know, climbed my hand over. Were you behind her? Or were you looking yeah. where you on, did you have her on the ground? No, I was, uh, like I said, uh, she got up and was trying to run around and I, you know, grabbed her from behind and was kind of hugging her with her mouth over her, her uh, hand over her mouth and nose. And eventually, you know, after she started getting weaker and stuff, and I mean, we flopped around. I've got pretty bad carpet burns on my knees from it because oh, I said she put up a... Jamie fought so hard that Kevin got carpet burns from trying to hold her down. And the entire time, he's holding his hands over her mouth and nose. As she's struggling for air, Jamie starts trying to grab at random objects laying around them. Something she could use to hit Kevin and get away. But anyway, yeah, then she still, I mean, once she was down on the floor, she kept me almost slipping out of my grip. And she ended up, she ended up, yeah, on her stomach at one point. Yeah, she ended up on her stomach because I remember uh, there's a toolbox sitting there by the edge of the... Uh, I love seat and you know as kind of in like her last moment she just started, started kind of reaching around grabbing things and she like opened that toolbox and then she pretty much went limp and I laid there on her for a good you know couple of minutes more to make sure she was dead because she'd still every now and then uh, cause, you know clamping through your she, she could still get a, kind of a little bit of air sometimes through her fingers my grip slipped a little bit so I laid there for a while and finally was pretty sure she was dead flopped her over and then about five seconds later she took a breath hmm. so i had to jump on her and do it again it took probably several more you know it's probably wasn't as long as it seemed like but it seemed like it took her another five minutes to get her went then and then finally when she was i was pretty sure she was dead again 
But killing Jamie took a lot longer than he anticipated. Every time he thought she was dead, he would let her go, but then she would randomly gasp for air. Just like knocking someone out, strangling someone isn't as easy as they make it look in the movies. You know, I finally got her down to the ground, finally got her, you know, I mean, we struggled. It It took me probably 15, 20 minutes to kill her, uh, to get her completely dead. Because then even after, well, anyway, I, you know, struggled with her for a minute, finally got her down to the ground on her stomach. And so I was kind of sitting on her back, you know, with my mouth over. Or, no, she was on her back, yeah, but I was sitting on her clamping my mouth. So she pulled it down on her face and you were covering her mouth. Yeah, kind of sitting on her, not really putting my full weight on her, you know, kind of like on my knees with a little bit of my weight on her stomach to hold her down. And, uh... Did you feel aroused at that point? Very, yeah. By the time I, by the time uh, I got done killing her, uh, you know, my underwear was soaked. You know, when you get aroused, it'll start, you know, kind of leaking a little. Pre-ejaculation. Yeah, it was, uh, I was, my underwear was pretty much soaked by the time she, uh, well, even before she was completely dead. But, so, are you telling me you were sexually gratified during this struggle? Pretty much. Yeah. Did you have an orgasm? I didn't. Or was it just, I, I didn't or, orgasm, but I was, you know, very, very erect. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, just standing there behind her, debating on killing her or not. You know, I've started to get an erection. By the end of the struggle, Kevin was exhausted. He had exerted all of his energy over the last twenty minutes and his hands were cramping up after holding down her mouth and nose. But by now, he was pretty sure she was dead. Just to make sure though, he placed a piece of duct tape over her mouth and nose. And now it was time to move her bicycle so none of the neighbors would see it outside of his apartment. And uh, then, you know, once I got her taped up, I drug her into the bedroom so I could open the front door and wheel her bike in. Where'd you put her when you put her in the bedroom? Just uh, there in the floor, like between the computer desk and the bed. I just like wheeled her kind of right through the door, far enough that I could close the door so I could open the front door without anyone seeing. Do you remember any of your neighbors seeing you talk to her that day right before she came to the apartment? Unless they were looking out the peephole or anything, I don't think any of the neighbors had ever seen her talk to me at all. Okay. But, and you know, that was one of the things I was always so nervous about is, you know, like, the apartment right across from me, they had a door with a peephole, and I'm, you know, like, what if they're looking out the peephole right as I grab the kid? You know, something like that. So anyway, you took her back in there, then you went outside, did you get the bike? Was yeah, I got the bike, wheeled it in. First, I stuck it in the uh, big walk-in closet, just to get it out of the way. You know, my head's so low to the ground, I wouldn't have went under the bed until I removed the pedals and everything. You know, then that was the main, what, what I thought, you know, all along was like, the main flaw in my plan, because it's a, because with my plan to eat her and everything, it seemed like the bike was going to be a lot harder to dispose of the body. So you'd give him some thought about, hey, I got to get rid of this bike. Yeah. After bringing her bicycle inside, Kevin turns his attention back to Jamie. Trigger warning, this next part includes graphic descriptions of how Kevin sexually assaulted Jamie's body. I never, like I said, I never actually had sex with her, but after I got her bike in, you know, she was laying there in the bedroom and I stripped her clothes off of her. Where'd you put the clothes after you took them off? At that time, I just threw them in the floor and they were all wet and smelly. She'd wet herself when I was choking her. Uh, but I took her clothes off and 
licked her nipples a little and, you know, kind of smelled her vagina. And I kind of got the tip of my penis in her, but that was it because I, I, mean, I was going to try to have sex with her right there. But when you say in her, can you describe whether that, what body part that would be? Uh, her vagina. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even like I said, I just kind of, well, I was going to, but the way she was like laying right on the floor, I couldn't really get to her very good. So I just, just kind of tip of my penis kind of rubbed her vagina a little bit. But, you know, it might have, as far as like DNA goes, you know, there might be some of that uh, pre-ejaculate on her. But Did you take all your clothes off? Yeah. Like, as soon as I got the bike in, I stripped myself down, then stripped her down, and, you know, was going to have sex with her and found out I couldn't, so I was going to move her, uh, I was going to move her into the living room onto the uh, couch, where I had a, I had like a big beach towel. It's in the uh, uh, box with her, a big red beach towel that I had bought you know, lay down on the couch so I didn't get anything on the couch. Were you thinking at that time, were you thinking about hair, blood, you know, uh, yeah, you wanted to keep that from off the couch? Blood and, yeah, sex fluids and stuff like that. You don't want somebody coming in later and analyze the couch? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, and so I was going to drag her in there to the living room, but she, you know, big for her age, uh, paper said she's like 110 pounds, and I was having a hard time, you know, flopping her over and rolling around and dragging her around. After spending several minutes trying to lift Jamie up onto his couch so he could rape her, he realized he wasn't strong enough. So he gave up on that plan and decided to just go ahead and start the dismemberment process. He said that his fantasy was to behead her while she was still alive and then hang her upside down so all of the blood would drain from her body and he wouldn't have to worry about a mess. But that's clearly not what would happen. So I decided just at that point, because, uh, well, you know, that was the reason I'd always wanted to, uh, my plan had always been to behead them while they were alive, was, you know, so the blood coagulate and I could get all the blood out, uh, like you would when you butcher an animal. Uh, and, you know, that way, so both of me wouldn't be bloody, and so, when I put her in my bed, hopefully she wouldn't leak any blood out on the bed and stuff. And so I was like, well, it's a lot closer and I don't want, you know, she's already been dead maybe 15, 10, 15 minutes. And so I don't want the blood to get all coagulated. So I'm just going to go ahead and drag her into the tub and behead her and then have sex with her body. And I got her in there, drank over the side of the tub, which, you know, I thought I was stronger than that, but I could barely get her up on that tub. Uh, and got a big knife. It's in a, it wasn't a butcher knife. It's uh, one of the knives in my collections. Well, it's the only knife in my collection, really. It's this big, ornate-like dagger. And it always seemed like it was pretty sharp, so that's what I was going to use. And I got her in there and propped her over the tub. You know, over the She was out of the tub, with, you know, just like her head, you know, over the edge, hanging into the tub. And I, you know, kind of got her. I put a rubber band in her hair so it would be out of the way. Because I didn't even want to, uh, like I said, I wanted the body perfect and clean. I didn't want it get blood all in her hair so I'd have to wash it and everything and uh, so I started sawing at her neck I, I couldn't believe the amount of blood that came out of a girl that small and it was already all clotted and everything Kevin Underwood was sawing at Jamie's neck and there was blood everywhere to fulfill his cannibalistic fantasy he even put a large bowl under her head to catch the blood so he could taste it later but since she had already been dead for about 20 minutes, the blood was thick and clotted. 
and nothing seemed to be going as planned. Was it going down the drain of your uh, tub? I had a bowl, a big you know, white bowl. It's in the kitchen on top of the microwave. I was going to collect, try to collect uh, you know, a lot of the blood in that, probably taste of it. And uh, But then when it started coming out, you know, it was you know, pretty much hard to get to go where I wanted it. And I said it was already all dark and caught it and gross looking anyway. So, yeah, most of it was just going down the tub. I had the water running and it still almost clogged the drain. It was so clotted already. And, uh, Did you ever pour any Drano down the toilet? I didn't have any Drano. I was going to go out and buy some. But, uh, all I had was I poured like some other cleansers, some toilet bowl cleanser and stuff down there to help hopefully break it up a little bit because I was afraid it might back the pipes up or something back up into other people's apartment or something and you know they'd know something was going on when they you know then they'd find her missing and know that someone in the apartment complex killed her okay uh, so you you had trouble sawing her head off yeah yeah that's what you know, I was trying to remember where I was yeah I went you know got I guess to her spine and I just sawed and sawed and sawed and could not get it last and I was pretty much exhausted by then, and like I said, you know, as soon as I hit her, you know, I wished I hadn't started this, but, you know, as soon as I hit her the first time, I was like, well, now it's too late, I can't stop now, yeah. yeah, I mean, that was the only reason I even went through with any of it, and then I said, you know, I was disgusted at first, but then once I was climbing down on top of her, holding her down, choking her, I got aroused again, uh, but so at this point, you know, I was just disgusted as I got this mess. Because I couldn't even keep the blood in the tub. It was running down her and right down the side of the tub into the floor. And you know, I was like, you know, at this point, I'm just clean up this mess and get the body out of here. I'm not even going to have sex with her. Kevin had been planning this out for months. In his perfect scenario, he would kidnap Jamie, rape her, behead her while she was still alive, And then over the next couple of days, he would keep her body in his bed where he would repeatedly rape it. Then once he was finished with her, he would cut her up and eat her. This is truly one of the most disgusting and disturbing cases I've ever heard in my life. And Kevin Ray Underwood's fantasies are not much different than Jeffrey Dahmer's. But like most first time killers, nothing went according to plan. Kevin was quickly realizing that everything he did that day was for nothing. He didn't get to have sex with her. He couldn't dismember or eat her. And now he just wanted to get her out of the way. I was already pretty upset. You know, I can't believe I did this. Wish I hadn't did it. You know, wish I could take it back. Right. And, uh... So at that point, did you start thinking of coming up with a plan that I won't get caught? Yeah, I had to change all my plans since I was going to be a body. And Were you thinking about how am I going to dispose of the body and how am I going to dispose of the bicycle? Yeah, that was, I had bought that uh, big Rubbermaid container she's in. I had bought that specifically for this too, but not for... Can you describe that for us since we don't have a picture of it here? It was just a big, like, I think it was like 50 liter, big gray, you know, Rubbermaid container, like storage container with a your lid on it. Where did you buy that? It's been weeks. Uh, probably Walmart. three or four weeks, yeah, from the Walmart Supercenter in Norman. Did you, uh, and you bought it for the purpose of your plan? I bought it for the purpose of, because like I said, I wanted to keep the body around for a couple of days, but I wanted to still be able to eat it when I was done, so I didn't want it to go bad. I was going to, 
I wanted to get an ice chest, but they didn't really have any ice chests big enough to put a kid in that weren't like really expensive. So I just was like, well, I'll get a you know big container like this. It seals very fairly well, and just keep a bunch of bags of ice in there. Did you keep your receipts from when you bought that stuff? No. Did you pay cash? I pay cash most of the time. Sometimes I use credit card. That that particular time I might have used the credit card, but I don't know. And I don't usually keep my receipts. Occasionally I'll throw them down on the table when I get home and I don't clean very often, so some of them might still be there, but I can't say whether or not that one is. Okay. So at this point you decide you're going to put her in the tub? That container, yeah, I was be like, yeah. I call it a tub, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, the plan, you know, the plan all along for disposing of the bones was to use that uh, duffel bag thing, but then I was hoping I'd still get the body in there, but, you know, I got her and realized, well, no, she's way too big for this, and I liked to never even got her in that tub, because, because I, well, you know, was, it, I, was the duffel bag, was it bought for this plan, too? No, I'd had the duffel bag for several years. Now, after attempting to saw off Jamie's head, Kevin got a little tired. So he left her in the bathroom with her head hanging over the side of the tub and he went over to his computer to chat with his online friend, Melissa. Here is that conversation. Hello. Hello. Would you like to pet a furry squirrel? Yay, okay. Yay, me too. Let's go find one, lol. I'm glad people are starting to realize how great and funny squirrels are now, lol. I see them everywhere on TV. And like every kid's movie that is out right now has a crazy squirrel character in it. Ice Age 2, The Wild, Over the Hedge. I want to go see Over the Hedge because of that squirrel. Rolling on floor laughing my ass off. The apartment across from me has two corgi puppies outside now. And they run up to the fence whenever I go by. If people aren't home, I'll stand there and talk to the puppies and stick my fingers through the fence and the dogs lick them. The two would go on to talk about a number of random things like songs, skin rashes, and cars. Again, pretty much every conversation I could find between these two were just dumb. But it's wild to me that he could go from dismembering a little girl to chatting with someone online as if nothing happened. But anyway, and, and you know, when I said from about four to, I was probably more like 5 to 6.30. I was online talking to that girl in California while the, uh, you know, half-beheaded corpse was sitting there and, you know, sitting up propped against the tub, draining, because... Was your mind, in your mind, that I need to set up an alibi for where I was? Because you you seem to say, when we were talking to you, like, hey, yeah, she can vouch for me. I'm the... No, I, I, no, I came up with that after. I mean, I was just genuinely... I decided that... Uh, so I went to try to get rid of the body... But they were still bleeding too much, and the uh, stomach contents were pouring out of the neck. And uh, so I was like, well, I'm going to let it sit here for a few hours and coagulate some more, so maybe I can move it without it you know, bleeding everywhere so much. So I just kind of went about my business with this. I closed the door because, you know, the bathroom, because like I said, I was sick, you know, sick to my stomach that I'm doing this. I didn't even want to, you know, see the corpse. And, uh, I just kind of closed it up in the bathroom with some uh, incense burning to cover up the vomit smell from going up the uh, uh, 
you know, air vent because, you know, I, 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 vomit where she was coming out. Yeah, some of the contents were leaking out of her neck when I tried to move her. Because, uh, you know, I can often smell things coming from other people's apartments when they're cooking something strong. And I don't want people to smell the blood and vomit, so I put some uh, strong incense burning in there and closed all the doors. Kevin was getting sick around Jamie's body because her stomach contents were coming out of her neck. So he burned some incense, talked to his friend online for a bit, and after a few hours, Jamie's father Curtis came home to realize his daughter was missing. Soon enough, the Purcell Park Apartments was swarming with police. So Kevin joined everyone outside, and he tried to play the part of a helpful neighbor who was concerned for Jamie's well-being. I mean, I was literally physically sick, mainly, I mean, partially from what I did, and partially I was, you know, wore out and sweating and hot from the exertion, and I don't do well in warm temperatures. It's just sitting there in that, that was part of what was making me sick, sitting back there in that office, because it was, even in here, it's too hot for me. It feels pretty good in here, but I grew up in a house. My parents kept it like 70 degrees pretty much all the time in the house. Anything over 70 degrees, I start to get hot. Uh, but, so I was, you know, just sick to my stomach about the vomit, and so, but I was sitting there at the computer talking to her until, well, then about that same time, you know, I, I was also, I was talking to her, but I was also occasionally stepping outside, you know, helping them look for the girl, stuff like that, kind of setting it up an alibi there, and when acting first, like I was all concerned about her missing. When did you first notice they were looking for Pretty much right after I killed her, I looked out and I noticed the uh, dad got home a little early, it seemed like. He was home before five, I think, and that was probably about five or so. I noticed him out there uh, starting to walk around and get in his truck and drive around. And then, you know, I went out there one of the times specifically so he could ask me, have you seen her? And I could say no. And so he did. And I was like, uh, well, and I told her, told him, you know, the story the, well, the last time I saw her. I saw her come home from school. She went upstairs, came back down, got on her bike, rode off. That's the last time I saw her. Uh, and then, you know, like I said, I was stepping out there occasionally, acting, you know, uh, like I was keeping a watch for her in case she came back while Dad was gone and talking to the manager and all that stuff. And, you know, oh, I hope they find her soon. It's horrible. You know, just kind of setting up and making myself look concerned, but not too concerned because then that would make me look suspicious too. So, uh, and then finally, yeah, about eight, eight o'clock or so, I, you know, I told him, I was like, well, I, you know, I'd like to stay out here and help, but I've got to get back to bed because i got to, you know, work early in the morning. After pretending to search for Jamie, Kevin goes back to his apartment and decides it's time to take care of the body in his bathroom. By now, Jamie had been dead for so long, her body had started to stiffen making it very difficult to shove her into the plastic storage bin. And then, you know, I went inside and finally finished uh, cleaning up the body and it's still white everywhere. And I had to wash the tub out and wash the floor, scrub the floor. When you get the body in the tub, do you have to cut limbs off? Or? No, she's not cut up at all except for the neck. So you just basically packed her body? Yeah, and by that time, that was the reason I had such a hard time getting her into that is because by that time she was already stiff and... She had been in like a kneeling position on the tub, so her legs were like all bent up like this. And, you know, I couldn't get her knees to go down far enough to get the lid on. That was the main reason it was taped on at first, because it wouldn't go down far enough to snap on. So 
I snapped it on and taped it down so it stays snapped on. And then yesterday I went in there and, you know, taped it more to seal it, and, you know, in case it started smelling. Smells wouldn't get out. Smell out. You know, the clothes that you're wearing during all this, did you put those in the box with it? No. Uh, they're, I still wore them the next day, even though. Cause so you I didn't get much below I didn't, didn't. Well, every time I'd go, I mean, I, I wore them when I was choking her. But then, you know, when I was cleaning up the messes and cutting her head off and everything, I took my clothes back off. So you were. Except you were, for a. Pair of underwear, pair of gray underwear, which I think I stuck back in my underwear drawer. I didn't get anything on them either. So it was just, just in, in the tub, it's just her body and the clothes she was wearing? Uh, her body, yeah. The tub the, being the blue. The blue. Yeah, the blue. The blue. The, uh, I call it a tub. I'm yeah, but. Uh, would be different from the bathtub, yeah, uh, but you're talking about the. Talking uh, about yeah, the blue well, tub. Well, I, I tried to move her, but she was still making a huge mess. So I got a tarp I had also bought for this purpose. But How long ago was that? About the same time I bought the tub, like the container. I bought it at the local Walmart, I think, though. Okay. But, um, what was I uh, So that tarp's in there, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's in a... So I went to move her, and she was bleeding everywhere. So I... Well, I mean, I bought the tarp for the person not getting blood, because uh, I was going to have, have sex with him on the couch, but when I went to torture him and stuff, I was probably going to put him on the floor on the tarp. Because there'd probably be some blood. And so I bought it for that. But then when I went to move her, I was like, you know, I can't even move her. She's so heavy. Uh, so I'm going to try to flop her over onto this tarp. And maybe I can slide the tarp around a little better and wrap her up in that. So I kind of laid her on the tarp and folded it over a little. And then got her in some trash bags as good as I could. And when I opened it up, I saw the blue shirt. Did you just like kind of put her clothes folded on top of all that stuff? Afterwards, yeah, I put her, I put that, that red towels on the bottom of the tub to soak up any blood or anything. Because uh, at first I figured I'd just dump the body somewhere, wash the tub out and bring it back. But uh, then at the end I was like, no, I don't even want to open the tub and look at this body again. I'm just going to drag the tub out to a field and set it on fire. Because that had been part of the plan all along. If somehow I wasn't able to eat them and there was a body left over, you know, because here until just a week or two ago, you know, we were having like a Burbank. really bad drought, you know, yeah. fires were just breaking out all over, so I just going to drag her out to a field and set it on fire. But Kevin never got the opportunity to do that. After shoving her body into the plastic storage bin, he tapes it shut and puts it into his closet. Then he takes her bike apart and places the parts underneath his bed. Afterwards, he gets in bed and tries to go to sleep. While Jamie's family is upstairs, worried sick, having no idea that she's just feet away. The following day, Kevin chats with Melissa again, and this time, he actually brings up Jamie's disappearance. I'm glad you're on. Okay, what happened? I've had a horrible 24 hours. Huh? You know how I said I was going to go to bed early last night? Well, in fact, I hardly slept at all last night. The girl that lives upstairs from me went missing last night. Oh my god. And I've been worried sick ever since. Mainly with the worry that I was going to be named a suspect and the police would trash my apartment searching it while I was at work. Why would they think you a suspect? As far as anyone can tell, I was the last person to see her before she disappeared. It doesn't matter, Kevin. She's missing. I know I have nothing to worry about, but it's driving me crazy ever since. 
If you have nothing to worry about, rest easy. Ever since about 6.30 last night, I felt like I was only moments away from throwing up. I've hardly ate in 24 hours. Poor girl. Ugh. I was out there helping keep watch for her last night till about 8 or so. I'm afraid the cops will come into my apartment and see all the knives, swords, and horror movies and documentaries about serial killers on my DVD rack and suspect me. There's always blood all over my bed sheets and stuff, but it's my own blood. Now, following this conversation, Kevin would remain a free man for another 24 hours, but it wouldn't be long until everything came crashing down. The following day, the police would stop him and his father at the roadblock, and just a few hours after that, they would find Jamie's body and he would confess to everything. We pretty much played you the entire confession, but we spared you the last few minutes when Kevin starts to profusely vomit in front of the agents. But following this, he's taken off to jail to await trial. And the news of what happened to Jamie Bolin was quickly spreading around Purcell and the surrounding communities. As you can imagine, everyone was devastated that something so horrific could happen to such a young, sweet, and innocent little girl. Jamie's mother, Jennifer, even blamed herself and her job for not being there for Jamie. Because I blame trucking for me not being home, not being there for my kids, and not being there to save her. Prior to this, Jennifer had been sober from her meth addiction for nearly a year, but the grief that came after her death would drive her to relapse. Meth. I was in a mess. I'm still fighting it. Um, I was a year clean, almost to the day when Jamie died, and I relapsed. It was difficult for Jamie's loved ones to wrap their head around how someone could be so evil. And he had hair the same as Jamie's. You know, I I started going, how how could he? He said he liked her. How could he do this? Basically, I lost it. I called my mom up and I said, Mom, I want to be with Jamie. I want to go where she's at. She needs me. And that's selfish of me to think that way because I've got two other girls. I've got to stay here for For Jamie's funeral, which was held at the Purcell High School Gymnasium, nearly a thousand people attended to pay their respects. Among the crowd were Jamie's friends and family, her fifth grade classmates, teachers, and members of her Girl Scout troop who had actually helped search for her earlier that week. It's never easy to attend a funeral for a child, but it's even harder when that child was taken from this world in the worst way imaginable. Everyone in Purcell, Oklahoma was outraged, and the majority of people were very happy to learn that Kevin Ray Underwood was facing the death penalty. His trial would start in February of 2008. Experts would testify that Kevin had a troubled past and a slew of mental illnesses. They also discussed the fact that he had a number of deviant sexual fantasies that included urine, feces, vomit, pedophilia, and bestiality. His trial also revealed that Kevin had been making disturbing comments to several people around Purcell, Oklahoma. A woman named Elvira Griffin, who was Kevin's hairdresser, said that about a week before the murder, Kevin came in to get a haircut. And while there, he commented on a picture of her one-year-old son. She said that he started talking about her baby's nipples, even though the picture he was referring to didn't even show his nipples. 
and Kevin told Elvira that it was so unfair that girls can't show their nipples, but boys can. She said that he also referenced Jeffrey Dahmer, Another man named Michael Horner, who I believe worked with Kevin, said that one time a female customer walked by and Kevin said to him, quote, I wonder what she would taste like. During the medical examiner's testimony, many of Jamie's loved ones had to leave the courtroom. They couldn't stand to sit there and listen to how he mutilated her body after he killed her. It was a very tough trial to sit through. Dr. Robert Prentke, who evaluated Kevin, said, quote, If he was beaten up in the schoolyard, I can only imagine what it would be like in the penal population with his governing offense, end quote. And he would later add that Kevin will likely be killed in prison by another inmate. And although he hasn't been killed, hearing that again is just an eerie similarity to Jeffrey Dahmer's case. But on February 29th, 2008, the jury would deliberate for just 23 minutes before coming back with a guilty verdict. His uncle would later say that Kevin Underwood belongs in hell, saying, quote, There's evil in this world. He's a demon and needs to go right back to where he belongs. End quote. When Kevin's sentencing trial came around, everyone was so nervous about what the jury would decide. Jamie's mother was so worried she couldn't even bring herself to go to it. But in the end, on April 3rd, 2008, the jury would sentence Kevin Ray Underwood to death by lethal injection. Here's one juror talking about how he came to that decision. Well, like I said, I came into it with an open mind, but you know, when I heard the evidence, I was pretty well laid up when I went to the jury room, but I don't want to be any chance of him ever getting out of prison again. And as long as he's alive, there's a chance. But if he's not alive, there's no chance he's ever gonna get out. Here's Jamie's uncle after the verdict. We take no pleasure in what, you know, putting somebody to death, but this is the only just punishment for a crime like this. And, you know, it's just all we can do is just now move on and try to go on with our lives and, like I say, try to remember the good times. When asked what they would say to the Underwood family, they responded with this. We don't hold the Underwood family responsible for anything they're just as much a victim as we are the only one that did anything wrong was kevin and he did that on his own accord and you know i don't hold none of them responsible for nothing uh each man makes his own decision in this world we've all had hard lives you know and not all of us go out and do things like that jamie's grandmother would tell the media that before this case she was opposed to the death penalty, but now she has a different perspective, saying, quote, I was for mercy, and then I found out what he did to her. He showed her no mercy. He made his choice. He is a monster in human form, end quote. Following this verdict, Kevin Ray Underwood would go off to death row. In last year, in July of 2022, he was one of 25 inmates who received an execution date. It was supposed to be scheduled for December 7th, 2023, but it has since been postponed. So he is currently waiting for his new execution date, which I can only hope will come soon. But to end this episode, I wanna read a quote from Jamie's family members. Her aunt would tell reporters, quote, that guy took a life that had just begun. 
Her daddy is not going to walk her down the aisle. She's not going to get married. She's not going to have babies. It's over for her. And her grandmother said, quote, There will be too much money left at Christmas and too few presents under the tree. Easter, we will have one less basket to make. Thanksgiving, too much turkey left over and not eaten. And in August, one birthday cake and one party that will be unneeded. End quote. This year, in August of 2023, Jamie Rose Bolin would have been 28 years old. But because of the acts of this monster, she's forever that 10-year-old little girl with bright red hair and freckles. And this case goes to show that you never really know the people around you and that sometimes evil is closer than you think. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey everybody, it's Colin here. Thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of Murder in America. Now, I just want to say thank you to everybody out there who's listening and to all the new people who are joining us. We actually just had the biggest week in the history of our podcast this week. So technically it'll be last week when we're releasing this, but... Yeah, so I cannot thank you enough. Courtney cannot thank you enough. We both love each and every one of you that are out there listening to this show every week. And thanks for helping us create this amazing community. We have some really big news and some really big updates coming soon. Some crazy stuff that's happening in our lives behind the scenes. But yeah, we're going to keep that under wraps for now. But I want to shout out our new patrons this week. Cammie Bailey, Dylan Decker, Bridget Foster, Justin Russell, Dazed and Contused. Charles Smith, Isha Ruiz, Lexis Wright, Brittany Stewart, Lauren Bovey, Jacob Page, Sam Riley, Jessica Dolce, Meg, Brita, Brianna, Katrina Olson, Annabelle Nunnery, and Rachel Peters. Oh my God. Every week, guys, I get so shocked by how many new patrons we have. And thank you all for becoming patrons. If you don't know what Patreon is, we release the ad-free version of every episode on our Patreon every single week as soon as the episodes go live on all streaming platforms. So if you want to become a patron, have your name read at the end of an episode, just head to patreon.com and search for Murder in America. You can also follow Courtney and I on Instagram at Murder in America. We post photos from every case that we cover on our Instagram as soon as the episodes go live. And don't be shy. Come join our Facebook group and uh, come chat with us and hang out. But yeah, this case was so disturbing. It was really a hard one to get through for both of us, but we felt like we had to tell it. So yeah, I guess that's it, everybody. I'll catch you next week.